Welcome back into another episode of the 100 Year Podcast. This is your host, Dario Strange. Uh, if you're listening via audio, this week, our co-host, Rahul Sood, the CEO and co-founder of Irreverent Labs, is out. But we do have an amazingly uh, special guest with us this week. That is Roni Abovitz. Um, Roni, how you doing? Long time no here. Hey, Dario. Great, uh, great to be here. Great uh, to talk. Awesome. And for those of uh, of you out there who may not be aware of his background, he is the founder and former CEO of Magic Leap, which is uh, one of the pioneering immersive computing, spatial computing uh, companies in technology. Um, I, I would I'd say probably the only closest competitor would be maybe Microsoft's Hololens, but I would not compare the two. They're very distinct differences. And uh, since then, I think in 2020. Roni moved on to other new ventures that kind of speak a little bit more toward his interest in entertainment, the intersection of technology and entertainment, which we love. Um, but before we get into that, Roni, can you just kind of like maybe I've kind of fudged a little bit your background. Can you give us your perspective of kind of like what your original intent was, where, you know, how you like in, in history, like how you see history kind of uh, framing your work? Up until b- before well, that, your new venture, that is a really big question. <laughs> let me, <laughs> Dari, let, let me try to just give a, I guess a, a quick for this podcast kind of response. So, um, uh, for folks who don't know me, um, I did uh, mechanical and biomedical engineering uh, in college, and when I was in grad school, I was doing uh, biomedical engineering, which was a mix of like high speed med school, like you did three years of med school in 18 months with like system engineering is the best way to think of it. And I started my first company while I was in grad school, uh, living in uh, my now wife's $300 a month uh, grad school apartment. Uh, And that company became um, a company called Mako Surgical. Uh, We went public in 2008 and we were acquired by a company called Stryker, US-based company in 2013. Um, and Mako was um, a lot of really interesting things that combined like 3D imaging, stuff that you'd see at SIGGRAPH meetings with a robot we built from scratch uh, that um, had some technology we licensed from MIT's AI lab. So it was the first haptic robot really ever used in surgery anywhere in the world and uh, first to ever achieve a clearance in the United States. And I think Mako is now approaching a million surgeries and like a couple thousand systems around the world and uh, dominates its market in uh, orthopedic surgery. So that was that was kind of my first company and it used computer vision and AI. Uh, we built a factory in Florida uh, to build the robot, which was an anomaly. Uh, there were no tech startups really of, of this kind uh, down in Florida. People thought it was quite odd that we were doing it here. Um, and then after we went public, and a little bit before the acquisition, I started mulling over what I wanted to do next. And I kind of had a feeling one of the big uh, med tech companies was going to buy us. And I wanted to move from med tech into tech tech. Like, and I started imagining what uh, the future of computing would look like. And I started uh, uh, Magic Leap in my garage. I literally, uh, first, first thing I did was I turned my garage into a, like a film and audio studio. 32 channel recording, board tons of guitars everywhere. So I had like a control room and the garage was turned into like a proper recording studio. And that's where I was like uh, working on all kinds of interesting uh, projects late at night, make by day, you know, sort of like playing around in there uh, and collaborating with a, an amazing team in New Zealand, a group called Weta Workshop. 
where they're the Academy Award-winning folks that uh, design and develop, like The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, Avatar, uh, including the new Avatar. Uh, James Cameron worked with them closely to design the whole world. I thought, what was the future computing? And I wanted to work with like world builders to imagine that. And it was uh, really a, a super cool experience. I worked with them for a few years um, on a idea for like a world and maybe a film uh, called Our Blue. And then out of that um, sort of brainstorming and early conceptual work, uh, Magic Leap sort of emerged uh, as a tangent of technologies that we needed to build in order to move beyond movies into into things that can contain total... I was using the term story world at the time. I still love that world. Uh, the idea of a story world, uh, slightly different from like a game world or a, a metaverse. Um, and out of that, uh, kind of the, the journey of Magic Leap began. So it started in my garage and uh, then we moved to like a, like a warehouse strip mall thing in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, and then we intersected with uh, Google early on. And then it was like a rocket ship ride for a number of years. Uh, um, and then the pandemic happened, and which was crazy. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm condensing like it was probably like you and me sitting there for like 12 hours over like root beer and pizza. Uh, and then what's, what's really cool is like the system we designed just for the pandemic and started to get into production. It's kind of one, I think every major award in, in the augmented reality world uh, in, in, you know, in 22 uh, the Magic Loot 2. So it's been a chaotic, fun, and exciting ride to help create this sector. And uh, and then, you know, so I did Mako, I did uh, Magic Leap. And um, uh, for anyone who's interested, I'm, a, I'm doing senior advisory work at Boston Consulting Group, and I've got two new startups, one called Sun and Thunder and one called Synthpy. So that's the short form. And just let's let's timestamp a couple of those things. So the medical technology company, what year was that founded? And then I think Magic Leap was 2011. Was that, am I right on that? Yeah, Magic Leap was I was machinating on before 2011. But I think I formally created the I think the Delaware Corp in 2011. Uh, but I was sort of machinating around. In fact, I was uh, I found a notebook uh, that had sketches for what became Magic Leap from 1998. Um, actually, uh, I posted one of those uh, online. I just had this crazy pencil sketch of like kind of what magically became. Uh, so I was thinking about that idea a lot earlier, but formally, uh, magically uh, became a company around 2011. And Mako, I think it was 2000, maybe late 2003, that uh, we created Mako Surgical. It came out of. Uh, like a tech incubator. I had a tech incubator uh, with a surgeon and a couple of engineers we called uh, ZCAT, a complicated name, Z-K-A-T. And at ZCAT, we wanted to invent the feature of all of surgery, like like basically software hard robotics for every part of the body and wanted to build like this operating system for surgery. And it was a really cool idea. We created a ton of IP and lots of cool um, early prototypes and then we encountered investors that were really excited, but, but wanted to look at a very deep focus. Uh, and Mako was pulling parts of ZCAT into this deep focus into orthopedic surgery. Uh, and it turned out to be super successful, became a multi-billion dollar company uh, and a great exit. And then weirdly, the thing we spun out of ZCAT bought kind of the incubator holding company in the end. Uh, because uh, like, like zeroing in on 
what was really going to be successful in a field we were creating, like this field of computer surgery we were helping to invent, which was everywhere. Once we narrowed in on like, okay, this, this market, uh, this piece of orthopedic surgery, not the whole body was actually going to be really successful first. Uh, it turned into a big hit. So I want to kind of focus on 2011 because far, as far as I know, that predates when most people had any awareness of Microsoft's HoloLens, which is was and to great degree is the only real competitor to the Magic Leap uh, 1 and 2. And so I'm just curious, like what it, it, it the spatial computing, augmented reality, high level augmented reality computing space was and is still so new. And I think to some degree, uh, perilous, you know, kind of like a big, you know, a big leap, if you will, no pun intended. So, I mean, at that time when you began developing Magic Leap, did you have any awareness of any other competitors? And if not, like what convinced you that this was even a space to kind of, I don't know, bet your, your business life on? That's a great, great question. Um, so one thing I was able to do during Mako, and this is a link between Mako and Magic Leap, is uh, I was sort of scouring the world for something that could remove the monitors from the room, right? When you're doing surgery and you're working in the operative field, I was thinking, like, wouldn't it be cool if the surgeons could just see the volumetric imagery right there, like, you know, registered to the patient, no glass there, no monitor, and... What, what would that be like? And there were mostly military, because I think the military has been playing with like some kind of heads-up display systems for fighter planes for, for a number of decades, right? So if you look at the lineage of, of augmented reality, there's some things that go back a number of years. People wearing like television sets on their head with like weird video cameras on the other end. There's all kinds of weird history and and like virtual reality, it's like virtual reality has its own thread that goes back probably a hundred years. Um, but I think the thread that's really interesting is that like the military probably has been trying to move HUDs, heads up displays that fighter pilots got to use because you have this big plane and all the computing equipment that you could put into this like fighter jet uh, to put two dimensional reticles. Uh, and they were trying to put that on soldiers and other things. So there were like different companies that were making these like 2D glass overlays. And when you think about that, I was like, okay, that's, that's interesting. Um, but that wasn't the world I wanted to see with competing. It wasn't about a 2D information display. So what was kind of triggering the idea, and I was like really seriously pondering it, like already in like 2009, 2010. Um, I was at South by Southwest in 2010, really kind of like wanted to go make something like this happen. And it started to work on it more in earnest, like late at night. And in 2011, I really wanted to do it, uh, formalize things by, by making the, the corporation. Um, it, it was a vision of like, how do you take uh, what I called cinematic reality? So I'll just kind of walk you through the, the thought process. Cinematic reality was an idea I had, which was the the weird and cool blend of real world and amazing visual effects that you see in films like Jurassic Park, Lord of the Rings, uh, some of the great Star Wars things were just so artfully blended. You can't tell what's a CG model, what's visual effects, just perfectly blended. I was thinking like, wouldn't it be awesome if that could happen in the real world? And for that to be happening in the real world, it could not be a 2D overlay. You somehow needed to understand the volumetric physics of light 
and how the brain processes it. So thinking about that idea of cinematic reality, I realized no one had ever built anything like that ever. Uh, there, There wasn't even like any kind of good understanding of like, how does the brain actually process volumetric information in this way? Um, and there, and there was sort of a, a lot of really interesting work done in light field physics, uh, like MIT holography lab and things like that. But it was about trapping the physics of a light field onto a substrate, like a kind of holographic film, but not a lot of work in like, well, how does that flow into the brain? Like, how do we actually perceive our reality? So it kind of took a lot of weird tangents of like this idea of like, how do we create this like cinematic reality we see in the movies and bring that into the world? And somehow I thought that would be super cool for that to be the future of computing, not just entertainment. I'm like, wouldn't that be amazing if computing was like that? Um, I was also thinking about like the Harry Potter movies. I'm like, if you could make that happen, like computing would really feel like magic, like with gesture control and voice and this idea to kind of conjure, I was thinking like somehow with like sensing and these visuals and the emergence of like amazing AI, there'd be a whole generation of kids who grew up with a computer that thought they were going to Hogwarts and computing would be everywhere and all around you. So that was kind of the idea. And I think we, we, we took like a really interesting tangent away from a lot of folks because the starting ideas I think were not, uh, you know, coming from like a weird tech first idea it was like this sort of um interesting vision of what computing and entertainment could feel like but one of the core notions like what is cinematic reality how do we bring that to the world how could computing feel around you everywhere how could it feel like magic like like a harry potter movie for real uh those are some of the starting themes so i don't know if that makes sense but absolutely and i think it might be helpful i think a lot of our audience is aware of volumetric you know virtual constructs, but just to make it clear, um, I think it's important for us to delineate virtual reality, augmented reality, which in many cases, let's say something like a Snapchat, which, you know, just places a virtual, a a fairly flat, but it's actually gotten better in recent years for various reasons, but a fairly flat virtual image over the real world. And then spatial computing, which actually allows you to wear the headset and walk around virtual objects in that are placed in the real world that are like located and you can map out. You have, you know, I use the magic leap one. I've used, I used the magic leap two, but I actually, you know, lived with the magic leap one. I mean, I did everything from, you know, Dr. Grohrbortz, which was, I think one of the most brilliant things you guys created, um, which allowed you to essentially map any interior space. And that interior space became a different reality. Uh, aliens, robots would emerge from the wall and when wearing the headset, it looked as though the portals and the the objects and the characters were real and they responded to your presence. And this is something that, you know, all love and respect to Microsoft. You know, this is something that I, you know, after using the Microsoft uh, one many times, I'd never seen anything like this with the, you know, until I used the Magic Leap one. Um, I even took I remember taking the Magic Leap one like outside in the Central Park. And you guys had like a, I don't know what the giant rocket ship um, experience is. Do you know what I'm talking about? That giant yeah, the, rocket the ship. same team. And I recorded Weta. the footage. Did, did you, That's you took okay. the doctor, the doctor Grodbort's rocket and you could make it scale and would shoot up in the sky, right? It was, yeah, it was amazing. And it's like, 
the, 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 I think the challenging thing about the space, spe- uh, specifically the volumetric spatial computing space, is that it's so difficult to describe to someone. You know, when you talk to someone about virtual reality, you can kind of show them a trailer and show them kind of, I guess, the um, first person view of how it will look when you're in virtual reality, virtual reality being completely immersed in a, you know, made up uh, space. But it, it's another thing, you know, when you use, you know, an immersive, a spatial computing device that puts virtual objects around you in the real world, it's incredibly difficult to simulate that and, and, and transmit to a person what that's actually like unless they try it. And I'm just curious, like, you know, th- that was, you know, when I, when I was covering your company, that was one of the things that I was always worried about. Um, I remember you guys kind of partnered with uh, AT&T. Uh, if memory serves, and you guys had like these demo stations and everything. And I'm just wondering, like, how big of a deal, like how how much of a concern was that to you? You know, this kind of like point, this friction point of the consumer understanding what they had, you know, at their hands, you know, or at their fingertips. It's a great question and observation, Adario. So um, I called it the TV on the radio problem. Also a great band from Brooklyn. Uh, Shout out to those guys. But um, TV and the radio problem was, how do you explain television to people in like the thirties or forties by talking about it on the radio or talking about a new, it would make no sense. Like a box with tiny people that danced around would just be very weird and foreign to most people. Um, or they were used to going to a movie theater and it was really big. And like, is there a tiny film projector in there? You had to, you had to go to the TV store and, and see it. And it was like, it took, a, it took some time actually for television to break into the United States and the world. So we had this concept that you had to experience it. We felt like, you know, it's like the Jimi Hendrix, are you experienced? Uh, and we did a lot of things to try to get as many people as possible to taste a little bit of it. Cause I, I, I think I really did not. And I don't think anyone uh, on our team could actually explain as you were saying in a, in a way that was anywhere close to just putting something on and having someone like, experience like a really good version of something like Dr. Grodboards or the rocket ship or sit down and like Micah, which was our digital human. And she sits there looking at you in the eye. It just, it would just blow people's minds. And it's, it's still, it still blows people's minds because such a large percentage of the planet and this country have never seen anything like that. It's still going to be new to 99% of the population, which is, which is makes this feel so exciting. Uh, and people who have had a VR experience, they may think they know what it's like. But if you have a, an incredibly good um, experience, like imagine Dr. G on something like an ML2 one day. That that could be almost near perfection where you have no no more field of view issues. The graphics are like totally insane. Frame rate's insane. The the lock to the world could be like near perfect. And then, and then using like much more robust AI there's just no way to describe that to someone until you are in it. Um, I had my own experience. I'll just, just show this really quickly. As we were building Dr. G, uh, one of the heroes of the game is a, is a little garbage can looking robot uh, named, named Gimbal. Uh, and he, and he kind of flies around in the air and he looks like, you know, in the right lighting environment, he looks like a, a piece of solid steel with like smoke and he just looks solid. And you want to touch him because he just feels so real and the lighting is there. So in the beginning, we gave Gimbal his own AI and his own independence of thought. Uh, in the game you played, he actually had to be constrained because he kind of had his own free will too much. 
But I was like testing uh, an early version of the game in a big room, and we're fighting all these robots coming to the wall. And Gimbal is supposed to be there helping you. Well, the early version of Gimbal, with his own free will and his own AI, was like running to the back of the room, hiding behind a couch, like a real couch. And I remember walking walking over physically to a couch two or three, you know, maybe yards behind where I was trying to fight these like incoming enemy rope. And I just see Gimbal, like a little cat or a dog cowering behind a chair, hiding from them. And he looks so scared. I'm like, what is going on here? And I just, for that second, I felt he was real with some real emotion and real fear. And the creator uh, of, of Dr. G, a guy named Greg Broadmore, a friend of mine, uh, just a brilliant uh, creative director and artist, uh, he wanted Gimbal to do what he wanted to kind of perform in this script he was writing. And I, I actually thought it was this crazy moment of what will happen when AI and spatial computing really collide. And I just had this moment like Gimbal was existing in the world, hiding behind physical stuff, afraid of these like invading robots coming from a portal behind the wall. And it was just such a surreal and cool moment of like what the future is going to feel like for so many kinds of experiences in the next few decades. And I was just fortunate to kind of be there early and taste things that people are going to be probably living much more of in the 2030s. But we got to taste it early. Yeah, and, and I want to... Um, when was it on, by the way? Was that 2017 or 2016? Uh, no, it was, was 2018. 2018. That was 2018, 2018, wasn't it? It was 2018, yeah. yeah. So I went to LeapCon. That was in Los Angeles. And it was basically Magic Leap's kind of conference uh, first conference to kind of showcase some of the developers working on the platform, uh, allowing you and your team to kind of interface with the public. And that was my first taste of Micah. And the reason I'm bringing up the event is because I, I don't want to blow past that. It was my first encounter with Micah. And for those who don't, uh, who never experienced this, it, it was, for me, it was a groundbreaking experience. Uh, you know, basically for the demo, you were, you know, put in front of a, I think like a table, sat down and you just waited, you know, well, what's going to happen, you know, with the headset on. And then Micah, this completely perfectly rendered life-sized woman came in, came into the room and met you at the table and interfaced with you in real time, reacting to your interactions. And yeah, I just think that's really, um, when we talk about like kind of what's happening in AI, Right now, that was again, that's 2018 now that that was like a great early view of absolutely what's coming. Like when you look at something like um for, you know, science fiction fans, you know, when they think of something like the holodeck or, you know, some of the holographic companions on some of those shows. This was the first time I have ever and I've tested pretty much every augmented reality spatial computing device on the market Virtual reality, huge. I'm a huge virtual reality nerd. I've done pretty much all of it and have owned most of the devices. This is the first time I, I, I saw anything like that. And it was stunning. By the way, what was, was MICA an acronym? If was that, am I, was, was that just the um, name or was that an acronym? I, I can't remember. I tried to turn it to an acronym, but it just, we just, it just was a cool name. I think I was like, it was like modular, okay. intelligent computer something. But I think it was just Micah was, gotcha. was her name. The, the other breakthrough on Micah, though, okay. uh, she, the creator director uh, was a guy named John Manos, wonderful visual effects leader, and a woman named Alice Rowe from London. 
And Alice did some remarkable things. She put in like ethics and boundaries and cultural norms into Micah. Like you couldn't invade her space. If if you did, she would like back off and kind of glare at you. Like she wanted you to treat her well. We thought like AIs can't be abused because if you're going to do that, uh, that's going to teach people really bad habits. Um, and if you were harassing her, she'd leave. And the idea was if we were going to release Micah at some point, you had to earn the right to be around Micah. And she was not your subordinate. We didn't want people to think like an assistant, particularly a female assistant, was going to be your subordinate. The idea behind Micah's philosophy is she's going to be your superior. She's going to surpass all of us in intelligence, but we wanted her to have this compassion and empathy. And we wanted you as a, as a person working with something like Micah to have a degree of respect for for this entity you're dealing with. Like, I, I don't even know what to describe. It's like, it's no longer a piece of software, it just felt like an entity. But also that if you work with something that's so human in its look and responses, and you learn how to treat that well, would that transfer to your relationship with other people? So Alice uh, really brought some brilliant philosophy and ideas into Micah that most people don't know about. She, I mean, she talked about it at Tribeca at a number of conferences, but it is not one of the more well-known things that we did, and I thought it was super brilliant. Uh, she brought a great uh, sensibility and humanness to what appeared to be a tech project, but was actually like a social construct, uh, human relations uh, with computing and AI kind of project. So it was, it was very interesting. You could write a whole book about what Alice and John did um, around Micah. And by the way, respect to the Tribeca people, because... Um, over the past few years, they have been at the forefront of showcasing some of the cutting edge demonstrations of telling stories using immersive technology. There's one where um, they did like a, this retelling of Hamlet um, where it was immersive. And then there was another one where they actually had like actors in Brooklyn and in Manhattan and things were like spatially placed, but, you know, virtual. It, it was just, it, you know. Tribeca is, is, has been, I don't think they get enough credit for really doing, I think, you know, some of the best cutting edge demonstrations or, or facilitating some of the best cutting edge demonstrations in the space. Um, Super cool. I, you know, I, yeah, I, you know, I was talking to my co-host Raul about you coming on. And one thing, you know, he's, he's a, you know, a founder, former investor, a lot of experience in, in just the general tech space. And one question he had that I hadn't planned on asking, but I, I think it's relevant because I think all founders are concerned about this kind of thing. You know, when we look at someone like, um, let's say, Palmer Lucky from Oculus and how he pioneered, maybe not VR itself, but he pioneered to some degree the commercialization of VR. And he put in a lot of work and for whatever reasons, you know, that's, you know, you guys can look that up on your own for various reasons. He departed the company. Um, and, you know, on your side, you know, I think you started, you know, you, you were kind of telling us earlier from an enterprise technology space. And then you kind of moved into Magic Leap with this kind of enterprise plus entertainment approach. And there was this kind of narrative out there that, you know, perhaps this the company is a little too focused on entertainment. You know, we need to. And, and while you were still, you know, you know, chair, you know, running the ship, you know, you guys pivoted to enterprise. Um, but then, you know, you eventually stepped down. I kind of just want to get your thoughts as to how you view 
particularly the immersive computing space. And I know AR and spatial computing are not the same as VR, but they're still kind of like kind of like intersecting DNA in, in the spaces like pioneers like yourself and others who are basically pushing this forward. And then, you know, kind of other entities kind of come in and, you know, maybe the full story isn't told or maybe the full um, history isn't uh, mapped out as it should be. Do, do you get what I'm getting at? Like, uh, yeah, it's like uh, there's about 80 questions nested with about 10 others. So let me try to I'll try to unravel that and, and, and tell me if it's helpful. Um, well, let me just start with like my my take on immersive computing today. I think there's sort of two camps emerging. There is um, using virtual reality with pass through cameras to emulate augmented reality because uh, for some companies, they think that's the quick approach to certain specifications of, of good AR. Uh, and ultimately, they know they have to shift from that technology to something else, but they, they just want to do that because that's how their tech stack works right now. And then the other side of the mountain is kind of like what the Magic Leap 2 is doing, which is staying the course on true AR, but adding in things like segmented dimming and inserting like real real black into uh, pass, you know, see-through augmented reality instead of pass-through video. And I think what's going to happen is like those two directions are just going to merge and we're going to have like these ultimate devices, I don't know, five years, seven years from now that just do both incredibly well. So everything you're kind of, you know, in my bet is I think it's really going to be more like the Magic Leap 2 approach, which is it's it's really directionally pointing at the smallest possible form factor. You can get to really good field of view in that way, you can kind of get to full immersion and full transparency and everything in between. Uh, so we thought that was the straight line to the top of the mountain. The pass-through uh, VR approach is also trying to give you a, a taste of AR and taste of VR. What it skews to is like, you can kind of get a wide field of view right now at the trade-off of like, I have a huge weight on my head and I'm not seeing the real world directly. I'm seeing the world through cameras. And the current experience of that is not not great. Um, in fact, we actually built a lot of IP on that early on to try to think through, is that the right approach? And we eventually said no uh, and went down to just go through the hard problem and try to make uh, see-through work. But whatever camp you're in, um, I think they're going to end up at this um, like sort of spectrum where I think what a user wants is I get both. Like when I want to be immersed, I'm immersed. If I want nothing, I get full transparency and I should just see the world directly. Like like you could see through a really good pair of glasses, not through a video system, just clear see through the world. And you should be able to get the blend. I think that's kind of where everyone has to go because as a user at different times of the day, different locations, that's where you're going to pull. So I feel like the end game, here's what's interesting about this field. The end game is pretty clear. It looks like a pair of Oakley's. It's going to weigh less than 100 grams. It's not going to have a wire. It's going to have to run all day. Your field of view is going to be between like 90 to like 110, maybe 120 degrees uh, diagonal. And you're going to have like retina resolution um, or better. But, you know, retina resolution is probably good enough for almost every single human being on the planet, except for maybe like a Navy SEAL sniper. Um, you know, you're going to want like a battery that goes all day. And you're going to want like a, an insane graphics card, gigabit communication, uh, through whatever wireless system you're on. And there's probably some computing thing in your pocket that's talking to it through some high-speed wireless connection. And I don't know if that thing looks like a phone. It's just something sitting in your pocket. I think everyone kind of knows that's the end game. 
So the difficult thing between you know that and and where we are right now, it's like being halfway up the mountain climbing Everest. You know, it's really hard. There's like avalanches and yetis coming to eat us. And as a fan, you probably want to get to the top now. Like you don't want to struggle. Like I don't think if you know what the iPhone is today, would you go back and want the Motorola brick? Or all the weird phones everyone went through up until you got the iPhone. I mean, now that you've had the iPhone, it's like it's everything you ever wanted out of the phone, right? Or your MacBook is probably the ultimate notebook. And when people were lugging around like 10-pound giant things with a tiny orange screen, they were dreaming one day you'd have something like a MacBook Pro. So I feel like we're in this middle period of immersive computing and it takes a lot of guts to be a developer, to be a builder of the systems, to be a, uh, a user just because we're in that, you know, we're in that middle period and everyone's trying to find the utility. But what's weird is parts of computing like phones and tablets and laptops are at their end stage. Like they are where they are. And we want immersive to just get there instantly, right? To just, just leap over everything at some accelerated innovation cycle. And I was trying to push as fast as possible, but like, I think with human beings, there's a terminal velocity to how fast you can innovate. Um, and I think there's just a certain amount of time for learning and learning cycles until we get to that, like, you know, the promised land of the top of the mountain. But I think we're going to get there a lot faster, maybe in half the time, maybe three times faster than it took with like laptops or, or phones. But the reason I'm saying all this is like, I really do believe it's going to be the transformational thing in computing. I think we're past the early stage. We're in the middle period. I call it the Gemini period, you know, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo. But we're not yet in Apollo. And I think that frustrates some people, <laughs> frustrates the press. They want to be at the end game now, and they don't have the patience anymore. Whereas, like, you know, if you look at the history of computing, the press and the users and developers had a lot more support and patience, at least I think, for the process of creating the computing industry. With XR, there's like a heightened negativity on something that's just trying to move a lot faster through what might just be normal cycles of development. Oh, don't get the, you, you, oh, you, you, I'm triggered because this is one of my pet peeves. Um, I, you know, I was one of the early tech reporters devoting a lot of time to virtual reality as well as augmented reality. And one of my pet peeves is a lot of the tech reporters out there who maybe just tried on some headset for five minutes at CES or some tech conference. And, or maybe they tried the Google, uh, remember Google cardboard. They tried Google cardboard and they said, okay, that's VR. Okay. This, this is, this sucks. This is horrible. It's one of my pet peeves. And I think, um, you know, VR has like over time has slowly been able to kind of like transcend that, particularly with some of the gaming successes. But it's still there. There's still this weird negativity like, oh, you're wearing goggles on your face. You know, you, you, you know, why do we look like I think there's the Time magazine uh, cover with uh, Palmer Lucky wearing the, the VR headset. And it's like, you know, you can say all this. But I remember in 2020 and when I say you, I mean the press or the media, the tech media. I remember in 2020 when everyone was in lockdown and just you couldn't go anywhere and they were trying to figure out how to have Burning Man. And the organizers brilliantly decided to hold it in VR. And it was the first Burning Man. I had always, you know, planned on attending Burning Man. It was my first Burning Man was in virtual reality. And I That's have cool. to tell you, it was it was a life changing experience. And they the you know, the 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 veteran burners 
welcomed me with open arms. They did. I, I, I don't know if have you have you been to Burning Man, by the way? I, I've not, although I, I it's one of my bucket list things to do. OK, there's so there's a ceremony, you know, where they kind of like read you this poem and kind of like it, it's essentially this pledge of like peace and love and kind of openness to the experience. And these complete strangers in VR and it was in it was through uh, Altspace VR, which unfortunately I'm, I'm understanding is shutting down. That's not great yes. news, but it was on Altspace VR. And, you know, I really got to know some of these people and, and they shepherd, shepherded me through the experience. And yes, to those wondering, you know, because there are a lot of rumors about, uh, you know, uh, Burning Man about drugs. Yes, there were people on drugs in in VR. I I, I asked, you know, I, I that's really, pretty like, intense. You know, by the way, some of the people somewhere. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean that's and like so, too much. Like VR know, is already a lot. You don't need to do that plus VR. Well, that's intense. Yes. So so when you you know when I come across someone who's cynical about cutting edge technology like virtual reality augmented reality, spatial computing, it, it, to me, it is the antithesis of what you're supposed to be doing when you're writing about technology and trying to usher people into the next phase of computing, the next phase of what our reality will be. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that, that's one of my triggers. I just it really, you know, and I think, you know, you know, not to get too deep into it, but I think Magic Leap was kind of the target of, of a lot of that cynicism, frankly. Um, but moving on from that, moving on from that, I, I think um, you kind of have landed in a great space. Um, I want to talk about kind of what you're doing now, like your next phase. But before we get there, just let's you mentioned Neil Stevenson and Lumina, Lumina One. Um, Lumina, yeah. L Neil Stevenson is one of the most famous science fiction authors on the planet. He coined the term the metaverse in his uh, novel Snow Crash many years ago, and he worked for Magic Leap uh, as like one of the, I guess, you know, key members of the team while you, you know, when you were uh, running the ship. And now he's doing his own, I guess, blockchain metaverse uh, startup. Um, can, can you just like what you're an advisor there? Can you just like mention what, what he's doing there? Yeah, real quickly. So um, Neil uh, founded with a guy named uh, Peter Vicenis, uh, a company called Lamina One. He is the chairman and, and founder. Uh, he was the chief futurist at Magic Leap, which was a very surreal and awesome opportunity to work with someone as brilliant as Neil for a number of years. It, just one of the great moments of, of you know, having someone like that on the journey was incredible. Um, and he talked to me about like wanting to start a company, and I gave him a lot of encouragement. And uh, you know, I said I'll I'll help you from an advisory role, uh, to, you know, because I. I'm helping a lot of startups, you know, I'm doing some of my own. And uh, we talked about all these different things. And, you know, I think if I would distill at least my understanding of Neil's vision of what he's trying to do with Lamina One is this idea of a decentralized creative world. You mentioned one of the, I think, alt space, one of these worlds like just being shut down, right? I, I think of that as a centralized authority versus decentralized. And you can almost think of that as autocracy versus democracy. So I, I try to break down the philosophy of Lamina One. The idea that creative people and, and, and social systems like should have their world shut down because in some company they decide it's over and everything just goes away feels like the monarchy, feels like the autocracy. You know, a handful of people decide what maybe millions enjoy and it's over. 
But in a decentralized system, which is what Neil's espousing, creators uh, are much more participants in the economy. And there is nobody to shut down that system. You know, so it's a lot more of like why something like the United States exists. We didn't want a king. We wanted our own voice. We wanted, um, you know, and of course we have not lived up to the ideal yet that everyone is fully equal. We still have to do that. Um, But the philosophy of what it was supposed to be and what it's trying to become is this like society where you could be free and equal and there is no king. There is no monarchy. There is no autocracy. Uh, and I think Lamina One is an example. Um, you know, take the technology aside for a second. Let's not focus on the blockchain. Let's think about the idea. The idea that creators and and people can co-create worlds uh, and that that system is like not controlled by an individual. It isn't like CEO of Company X wakes up and says, I just want to shut this thing down. Or it's P&L is not where we thought it would be had a board meeting, now we're killing it. And like millions of people or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of time and energy invested in something is over. So I, I think Neil contemplated like in metaverse systems, you know, in pieces of these worlds that you build where so many people will invest time and effort and love and creating communities. And you could see some of this. There was a great documentary film that was made in VR. I don't know if you saw that film. I'm trying to remember the name. Uh, where people were just living a whole part of their life in VR. And if somebody shut that down, it would be devastating, you know, let's say at least a million people on the planet, like an early pioneering community. So the idea that these these uh, democratic decentralized systems are resilient and are not subject to the whim of an autocrat or a small group of people, but really have a much more democratic, stable uh, structure, I think that was really close to Neil's heart. Uh, we talked th- about that a lot uh, at, at Magic Leap, and I think he wanted to make that as a counterpoint to what he saw as pretty much every other company was just going to be like, you know, top-down autocracy. We're going to decide everything at the top and build these things, and you live in our world, and if we shut it down, we shut it down, and these are our rules, and that's how it is, like a lot of social networks. Um, but I think he's right that ultimately whatever metaverse, social, spatial computing internet systems become which is really what uh, the term metaverse implies. It's like the, the whole internet going spatial and being everywhere really should be in control of, you know, in a decentralized way with fair rules and giving creators a lot more control. And speaking of Lamina One, uh, shout out to Tony Parisi, who I believe is one of the key members in that new team. He was at Unity and now he's, uh, I think, working with them. Uh, a lot of people don't know Tony Parisi has... Uh, he was one of the early developers of VRML, which was like this web-based version of virtual reality. So I think he's like a really important part of that puzzle. I'm curious, like before we move forward, like metaverse, like given the provenance of, uh, well, well, we know it came from Snow Crash, but the, I guess, person and company that popularized it uh, in 2021 was Zuckerberg and, and Meta and changed, you know, he changed the company's name from Facebook to Meta. Do you think um, maybe we need to get away from the term metaverse? Is, is, is it kind of perhaps tainted by, I don't know, branding problems because of, you know, how people came to know it? That's a great question. Um, it's a loaded question. So look, I mean, I, I'm, weirdly close to two sides of that problem. Like I've 
I spent years working with Neil, the guy who conceptualized of the term metaverse, wrote the book, and we spent a long time talking about what it meant and how we can incorporate the best parts of it into the technology and systems we were building. Uh, and then I've been helping him on his thing. I'm not like, what is this decentralized idea of the metaverse? So I, on, on that side, I also met Mark over the years. And I mean, let me, let me say first some positive things. I, I have not met many people. I think there's just a handful who are as committed to making XR happen. You know, the whole bet, the bet a trillion dollar company was a trillion dollar company at the time. Um, renaming the company Meta. I mean, you can't get more fanboy to Neil on something like that. Like, Neil writes a book never thinking that some kid is going to grow up and rename a trillion-dollar company after his idea. So there's something kind of weirdly fanboyish about it that he became so obsessed with this notion. Um, you know, and then you've got, like, Ready Player One, which is no doubt inspired by Snow Crash, the Steven Spielberg movie. Uh, it was a great book, great, you know, really cool movie. You know, so I think this idea of like the Oasis, which was in Ready Player One, obviously inspired by by Snow Crash Metaverse, like wanting to make that happen. Um, I think that was like the the folks like um, Michael Labrash and maybe Carmack, they had this idea of like, we're going to go build Neil's Metaverse, I think, when they left whatever they were doing to to join Facebook and, and making Oculus happen. Like this was the beginning of that. So I think in a in a weird nerd geekdom, you know, these like sub subcultures of that, uh, the metaverse was the North Star. You know, the headsets were the were the pieces of the puzzle, but I think they were all dreaming like we can make that thing happen one day. So on one level, you have to give this like weird, enormous, courageous credit to someone who's willing to rebrand this company and bet everything for whatever set of reasons on making that real joy, economics, pressure to be on the new platform, all kinds of things. Um, but it has created a brand problem, as you said, because there's now confusion over metaverse. Um, the name metaverse means too many things. Uh, it, it was now used everywhere uh, on everything, um, and people don't even understand it. Um, and I, I hear a lot of people describing the idea of metaverse as not having anything to do with immersion anymore. Right, there's whole camps that talk about the metaverse. Like, you don't need to be in an immersive device to experience the metaverse. Like, you can effectively do what we've been doing for the last 30 years and just get on a computer and play a 3D video game, and you're in the metaverse. You know, and and there's a lot of people arguing that because they think that's the bigger market right now. Um, so I think that there's a lot of functional branding problems. There's a lot of like philosophical branding problems. But despite all that, what the, what I think the metaverse means is the entire internet and all the computing around it um, is going to emerge with AI and spatial computing in various forms into something new. So it's not a, it's not a completely new thing. It's like, um, it's like a, a caterpillar in a cocoon turning into a butterfly. But it's in its metamorphosis period right now, and I think we don't understand that. In 20 or 30 years, we'll look back and go, my God, that internet it was in a cocoon and it turned into something else. And that's what we're in right now. And people are having this hard time describing what that else is. So let's, let's forget about the name, but that thing that we're transforming into is going to be remarkable. And I think some of the ingredients include 
the idea of spatial computing, like computing all around us everywhere with the sensing and the visualization and the sound field and even touch fields. I think it's going to no doubt involve extraordinarily cool AI and and, an enormous amount of like imagination, creativity. Now you could figure out like what ingredients you want to spin together in, in, in the pot and that stew, but it's going to turn into something, hopefully like a beautiful creature, a butterfly, you know, hopefully not a monster, uh, you know, coming out of the stew we're in right now. So I think, again, it's this middle period where we're in it. We're, we're cooking all of this stuff. We don't quite know what it's going to taste like. And I think a lot of people get hung up on the linguistics. And I think more about like, if you have the imagination to think about the experiences that would be amazing, that's where we should focus, whatever you want to call it. And I do think there's cohorts of people who are moving in that direction. So I, I don't know, Derry, does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I want to speak to kind of like the direction you're going in because everything you're saying from my vantage point leads us to one or one big question, which is intent. And I remember when Magic Leap launched and like little dribs and drabs of information came out and you began. And I, I think we a lot of us saw kind of like the first glimpse of you at a, at a TED talk with a very creative presentation and and, you know, over over time, over the years, we heard you, you know, in your own voice, you know, speak and kind of give your take on what you were trying to do. And I just remember it being all very evocative of the early Apple days in terms of, OK, yes, we're trying to do we're trying to execute on cutting edge technology and mainstream it. But we're also trying to do something that is human, that has uh, some sense of ethical direction Um and not necessarily trying to, you know, compare Magic Leap to Apple or anything like that or you to Steve Jobs. But, you know, you and I had a, a previous conversation where you kind of touched on that. And I kind of wanted to just get into that just a little bit because so many companies, when they kind of do their presentations of new products, they talk about, you know, philosophies of, you know, how the, the world will develop and, you know, kind of what their sensitivities are. But at the end of the day, a lot of them, you, you, you can tell it's not really in the DNA of the company. And with Magic Leap, it did seem to that there was something that you uh, embedded in the DNA of the, of the company that was humanistic, that was trying to do something more than just kind of like this technology play to extract the most cash out of everyone, but also something that might take us into a different realm in terms of how we relate to one another. Um, can you just speak to that? Just like how to approach technology from a, I guess, ethical and philosophical point of view. No, that's a great question. I really love that you observed some of that and brought it up because it, it was a really big deal to me. Then it was a big deal when I was making uh, Mako. Uh, to make a humanistic robot that would help people, you know, to kind of flip the idea of like robots being scary to robots actually helping human beings um, to this idea of like a hyper creative, imaginative computing system. Um, look, I, like, like a lot of people, uh, I grew up like a super Apple fanboy, Atari video games, but also sci-fi and novels and movies. So like, I would say like multiple influences, like, you know, like George Lucas, Spielberg, Steve Jobs, uh, Pixar, uh, but, you know, people like Tolkien um, and, you know, writers like Ellie Wiesel and Martin Luther King and all, uh, just a whole confluence of influences. And I think bringing in a humanistic approach into tech created a lot of problems for me. Like, I think it created tensions that if I didn't have them, I probably would have been more successful, made a lot more money a lot more quickly because I put constraints on our teams and I put constraints 
on how we were trying to deal with investors, all sorts of stuff that always led to tension. Because I, like, for example, um, we were very big on this idea of like data privacy. I was just like completely obsessed with the idea at Magic Leap that the only way you'd allow a device into your home, like, like we were creating with so many sensors, was that you had to have total control over that data pool. Uh, we actually called that concept a life stream. And this is an example of like trying to bring humanism into computing. We felt that you should own all of that. Now, that was irritating to some people who invested in us. I won't go into any names, but it was like, wait a minute. There's like a treasure trove of money here. And you've architected and policied away that revenue stream. Like, have you lost your mind? Um, but I but I said, like, you know, bringing this into your home, it's like, it's going to be like a really close family friend. You can't bring someone into your home and they're going to start rifling through your files and looking at your bank account. I'm like, a friend has to respect you. And in fact, it has to be like, your best friend, your most loyal pet, like it's, it's got to completely be beholden to you. Now we bring computing and AI in from large companies that is pretending to be our friend, but is reporting back to the parent company. I won't name them. You can figure out who they are. What I wanted, what we were building to be is like, it's loyal to you. The data it's solving goes into your repository and you completely control it. And, and that you should have locks and controls on how you release it or not release it. Now, you know, using that as an example, you could see how that irritates a lot of investors and their business models and how they've made money in computing for the last 20 years. Because it's like, you now have the most amazing device for data collection, and you don't want to make any money on that data collection. But I think it comes down to the idea that I, I think of people in the center um, and their imagination, creativity, and like the relationships around them, and like not how to exploit them. Like, how do we make their lives better? How do we amplify them? And, you know, it's a very tricky thing to navigate that philosophy with the investing world. Uh, you know, there's, there's like a huge tension there. And, I, and it's very difficult. And I, I think um, uh, as you grow and grow and grow, like, there's a lot more stress put on it. But, um, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm one of those founders that, like, just did not want to give up on those things. And I would have amazing fights with people about it, too. Um, but I hope that some people detected what we were trying to do was unlock, and I think I'm trying to do this in some of the new things as well, how do you get people's better selves, their imaginations and creativity unlocked? Because I think, um, I'll, just, I'll just go a little bit philosophical for a second. I think in a world where you have no imagination, you know, you don't have creativity, you collapse to fascism, you collapse to violence, because people don't see a way out. They just can't see a way out, and they end up just following a leader who tells them simple things, and they resort to violence, and they resort to hate, and they resort to fascism. I think there's aspects of the world like that that looks where people have no hope, they have no way out, uh, and they just look for a simple answer, and their imagination has collapsed. But in a world where imagination and creativity and humanity are upheld, it's a lot less likely you're going to have violence, you're going to have hate, you're going to have like the kind of discord we see in many parts of the world – because imagine if people can find new ways around issues. They have different respect for each other. Uh, and I, I was really hoping, I still hope, that a new kind of computing could unlock that part of our brain. Like, I really do believe in everyone's mind is this imaginative center that we had when we were like, you know, five, six, seven years old. 
and that it's uh, effectively, you know, there. And if you can tap into it, uh, you know, that is going to be an incredible thing. Awesome. And I I know we're kind of coming to the end of our time. I just want to ask you um, to the thread you're on right now. You know, we're looking at generative AI, visual text code. Um, and, you know, I've seen this kind of money grab. Uh, you know, if you go on U- uh, YouTube right now, you'll see dozens of videos, how to make money using ChatGPT. Uh, someone, uh, I think on the floor of Congress, maybe, you know, oh, he just delivered the first speech on the floor of Congress using ChatGPT. Um, there are, are kids, you know, university students who are using it to uh, do their term papers. And you now have professors uh, specifically saying, you know, you are not allowed to use, you know, AI to write your papers, you know, number th- and, and, and uh, there was also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the CNET, the big CNET story where uh, I don't know what, you know, flavor of AI they use, but apparently, you know, that uh, was kind of used in stealth and then revealed by another media outlet. And that's kind of caused like a lot of hubbub in the media space. And I'm just wondering, like, as you see, this is, I've never seen the technology space move this rapidly as generative AI. And I'm just wondering, you know, to your point that you just made, like, how does that humanistic approach, how do we, because I, I don't see government, government is generally slow to move on this kind of thing. So it, do you see any way for us to kind of put some guardrails or, you know, kind of ensure our our mental health, our, our career health, our social health, our, you know, as a society, you know, in, you know, as these things develop rapidly. I mean, ChatGP3, 4 is coming. Um, every, you know, just I, I know I asked you a question, but just real quick. I remember last summer, uh, some of the generative um, tools that allow you to create art came about and some experienced artists immediately said, OK, well, that's fine. I'll just use it as a tool to enhance my own skills. But what that didn't count on was the nature of software, which is to iterate and to improve in version, you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven, which may, you know, basically make what their construct, what they're thinking of in terms in terms of working in tandem, it might make that obsolete. So I'm just curious with, with all this in play, moving so fast, I you you, you have to have some. Uh, or I'm hoping you have some thoughts on how we might be able to guardrail this or protect ourselves in some way. Yeah, no, no, I, and I'm, I'm actually, uh, and one of my new startups is, has a really, uh, deep focus on like a, call it a next generation AI system, which is trying to address some of the issues you brought up. But let, let me, let me say this about it. I think there's immense opportunity to misuse AI. Uh, it's almost like the Doctor Strange thing at the, in the Avengers Infinity Wars, like, there's probably 8,000 ways to do it wrong and maybe two or three ways to get it right. Um, and it's actually quite weird why we're building AI as a species. Like, what are we doing? And we're trying to build this, like, super brain that has the collective intelligence of all of humanity and what are we, what are we doing it for? Um, if you think about it for a while, there's a couple... First of all, I think the architecture of how AI is being built has got its own issues so I think you can actually create an architecture which has some of the built-in safeguards. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see, and I'm working on some of that, like what, what one, which one will get adopted and why? Because I think one could be quite unstable. I think the path we're on is like, it's like building a crazy big nuclear reactor that's quite unstable um, versus like creating something that has a lot more stability and maybe, maybe ultimately more utility. So I think one, you could architect 
AI systems to be a lot more stable and responsive to human needs and much more in our control. I think that's one. I think the path run right now is building a super giant megalith, unstable, monstrous AI that we can't control. So I don't know why we're doing that. Um, the second thing is the energy behind AI, like all the computational power that's being created by like NVIDIA and AMD and, and all the networks and, and data centers that it's just like raw horsepower computing is the underlying push. It's some of it's not that elegant. We just have so much competing power right now. Um, it's not necessarily elegance of algorithms. It's just the raw horsepower, the sledgehammer of all this computing that's enabling things. So you ask the question, are we going to use it inwardly to, to just take away jobs or to do silly things like write grad school papers? Or are we going to solve the problems that we can't solve as people? Like, are we going to use this to like, you know, end cancer, uh, take down neurologic diseases? Are we going to use it to like actually solve climate change? Like, if you think about like those things where people just can't get it together enough, fast enough to end the biggest challenges uh, facing us, you know, the ones that are existential to someone's life or to the whole planet, like that's a good use of AI. If you go, we're putting all of our collective intelligence together in these machines to preserve our planet, to, you know, end a number of horrible diseases, like things like that, that's amazing. Right. I think everyone could rally behind that. And like we should that's a really good use case. But that's not necessarily the most monetizable use cases. Right. The monetizable use cases are these more permeating everywhere, taking over all kinds of things, questions, you know, and that that's kind of like we have no guardrails. Like if we had the right guardrails and policies around AI, we would be funneling that energy into these collective existential problems. That's what that computing power can be used for. So this is like. We could do an entire day-long podcast on this, but I think the exciting thing is we need this collective intelligence horsepower because I feel there are problems like we have not been able to solve as people. Like we still fight wars. We have not eradicated certain complex disease. Uh, we have not solved poverty. We have not solved climate change. There's like these enormous issues, social disparity. There's so many things that like, a single human or even a collective of people cannot solve the problem in their heads at the same time that an AI system can maybe understand it all as a system in ways that we can't and can come up with solutions we can't see. That's super cool, right? To me, that's very exciting. But again, the misuse, it's asymmetrical. The misuse is so big relative to the good use. Um, we need some kind of policy like, like nuclear power is regulated. Um, and for some reason, AI is running amok, unregulated, because we don't immediately see the the toxic leak parts of it. Um, and I think we have to think about it as like a life-saving, planet-preserving, you know, capability or a destructive entity. I mean, it, like the way it goes is not up to the AI, it's up to us. But we really have got to like come together. Again, this is a, a, a day-long jam we could have on this but like i think this is the time we have to lay down the right policies you have to educate governments around it but i do worry about the the asymmetry of misuse is very very high and the amount of people that really want to use it in a compassionate humanistic way seem to be outweighed by all the other crazy just like money making use cases so this is uh this is a very big open question Okay, let's. I, I want to switch to something a little brighter as we kind of wrap up, and I want to talk about Sun and Thunder. 
Um, so I had a chance to watch uh, your short film, Yellow Dove. Do I have the name right? Yeah, it's a Yellow Dove Aftermath. That's the that's the new film. Aftermath. Okay, and it's uh, yeah, I don't know how it was generated, but it's all in three D. Um, it is very reminiscent of some of the past work I've seen you done. It, it, did you guys get into Sundance? I feel like you said something about Sun, Sundance in a, you know a few be- few weeks back. We're we're applying to a bunch of film festivals right now, so it's our first proper okay. short film, and we're submitting it to a number of film festivals, and hope we'll get into some good ones. Okay, great. And so, just walk us through, like, how was this generated? Maybe give us like a general sense of what the story is, and you know what the idea behind you know this as your first you know Sun and Thunder project. Great, great question. So the the short's called um, Yellow Dove Aftermath, and it's the first proper short film from Sun and Thunder Studios. Our, our production partners, our collaborative partners, were Weta Workshop in New Zealand, the amazing group behind you know Avatar, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, and a uh, sister company they have called Pukeko Pictures, uh, which is like a, an amazing um, you know animation, a small animation team, but really really great. Uh, so we, we worked together over the last, um, you know, 18 months on developing a number of like cool techniques and also like, I would call like a very organic directing style and feel. And again, people haven't seen it yet. So you got to, you got to see an early preview, which hopefully when it's in festivals, people will be able to see it, but the tone and feel and animation quality, um, and level of detail, uh, is there. And it's also, a tiny uh, um, peek into this idea of like what I think of as a story world. Like ultimately we're trying to build an entire gigantic story world that uh, you ultimately can, can visit and, and be behind as that cinematic detail uh, that we're going to make a number of feature films from. And that's probably the level of quality and feel that we want to have in it, uh, which you're seeing in that short. And the other thing that you're, picking up in it, there's a lot of little things in there. Some of the things were created, some of the things were generated. I won't say what, and we're sort of blending um, AI and people and creative teams in really interesting ways uh, and peppering them together and trying to find the right mix so that it's, you know, it's like, where, where do people do the right things and how do we blend use of computing in the right way? Um, which I thought was, which is really interesting uh, and, and how we constructed it um, and how I was thinking about building it along the way. Um, again, the ratio of like a lot more human people build in this one, but um, some really c- cute little parts where something that really looks very human was built by a machine and something that looks like machine built was made by a human. So you really can't tell at some point. Um, but the other part of the dimensionality of what I think of as a story world is that every little object in that short film ties to something else. It has a story. It can go into an entire thread and it's part of a bigger bigger project we called Our Blue. So Our Blue is that thing you and I talked about at the beginning of the, of the podcast, which was something I, I started developing with Weta. I carved away from Magic Leap early on, and I built Sun and Thunder to make Our Blue as, as a series of animated feature films, the short being the first test coming out of it. Uh, but ultimately, um, I'll, I'll kind of leave everyone with this thought, a story world that passes the Kyoto test, and I'll just describe the Kyoto test to you. Um, I think there's a difference between going to a game world 
and going into what people perceive of as the metaverse. And I'll just use my definition of story world. Um, I'd love for someone to be able to watch like three, four films. And you kind of learn the mythology, the characters, and hopefully fall in love with some of them. And, and you're like, that was really cool. And then you go, I can visit that place. And visiting that place, let's say I saw some movies about Japan, and then I get on a plane and go to Kyoto. Kyoto is like very magical and mythical if you've ever been there. I was there right before the pandemic. Yes, I have. It's, it is. And it's just incredible, right? It's just an incredible place. But the thing that's super incredible about Kyoto, it feels like you can go to any alley, any, any store, anywhere, and you'll meet someone. And that person has stories. And everything and every thread just goes on infinitely. And I think a story world is not just visually three-dimensional, but it has to have dimensional stories. Like you can meet a character and that character is not uh, like an NPC. That character feels like you're having a discussion with a real human being. And they may take you to their apartment. And then at apartment, you see a photo on the wall. And the photo wall is like of their ancestors. And they go, do you want to see where our ancestors had this battle? And then you go to that place and you find relics. And like every story path is like intricately connected, like in the real world. So the Kyoto test, I think one day we'll go into an immersive story world. And the idea is like you could spend like three days in it and not realize you were in a computer simulation. That it would feel like you were in a real place where nothing ever broke and your flow and this creative experience of like being somewhere and following cool stories just like never broke. And I think like we are actually quite close to that. Part of its visual, part of its sound, you know, the, the cinematic level of detail, the frame rate, all of that, that's the technical part. But I, I'm really interested in, like, how do you tell dimensional stories that, that are infinite in all directions? And that's, that's where AI becomes really exciting. Like, how do you take a story mythology and it not just become a linear story or a play-by-number story, but, like, an infinite story demon that just, like, understands the mythology of a place and is always generating the next path for each person and individual base? I think something like that's just going to be amazing. Two things, uh, non-player character, NPC, for those listening who don't know, uh, demon, D-A-E-M-O-N, correct? Yes, yes, Not, yes. Right, okay, just just to clarify for people who may not, you know, be familiar. Yeah, with yeah, the like, term. no, the, the D-A, yeah, the D-A, yeah, the, the story demon is like a computer term, which is like this thing that lives in the computer right. that uh, is able to perceive and understand a kind of AI. But yeah, we should probably not use that term, it's going to confuse people. Yeah, yeah. Particularly with uh, AI getting this kind of like uh, apocalyptic uh, Terminator, uh, you know, whatever uh, vibe uh, in recent uh, months. So is this, will this, so I saw the short via a 2D screen. Will this be, is your vision to have this mostly presented via 2D screen? Is, will it be in a different format? I'm just curious, like how that, you know, will develop. So we're building the world uh, volumetrically and like, like a real place. Uh, and the idea is like going to a set in Tunisia or going to a place and you could just film there. So everything we're building is being preserved and ultimately building out this whole detailed world that, uh, you know, we want to get to a cinematic level of quality and, and that will just grow and, and be preserved film to film. But I think for this short and for maybe the, even the first feature film, if we were able to get that done. Uh, I want to present it in like normal theatrical way. Like I, I do love cinema, I do love movies, and I kind of feel like the buildup of short film 
open up the world, next film, open up more of the world. There'll be this cool interplay between watching a film, going to that world, and there, a relationship between those two, and then going to the next film, and then going to the world again. I think this, like, seeing more through the film and unlocking more of the world is going to be this really cool back and forth. Um, and I kind of like the idea of this reveal over time. And it'll also let us pace into the availability of technology to be good enough to hit this kind of like level of fidelity and experiential quality we're trying to get to, which is super high. Okay. And I want to mention, uh, like as we wrap up, um, you mentioned a company name to me that you're also working on. And if, if we, if it's in the skunk works and we're not allowed to mention it, we can bleep this part out, but you mentioned synth B to me. And I was just wondering, did you want to kind of explain what, what you're doing with that? So, um, synth B is, is that still a skunk works. If it's still skunk works, it's okay. Here's what I'll say about it. Uh, it exists. It's a company I spun out of Sin and Thunder. It is working on a next generation, more humanistic AI. It's in Skunk Works, and that's all I'll say about it right now. Gotcha. And I want to wrap up with like a couple of just fun questions. One, have you seen Avatar 2 in the theaters? And I'd like your perspective on that. And two, what would you say either either in television or film was maybe the best kind of science fiction representation of this story world um uh, not in not in terms of actual technical execution but in terms of special effects uh the best kind of uh expression of what might be possible i'm thinking things like altered carbon if you've seen that on netflix something like that uh so two two questions to kind of wrap up a little little bit of fun yeah let, let me let me just riff a little bit on avatar so i i love Avatar 1 and Avatar 2, and friends of mine at Weta helped design and create it, which is just super cool to know some of those folks. Um, here's what I would say about I think, no, no doubt, Jim Cameron's a genius, um, and the level of world building he's gone into is extraordinary. And I think what you see in, the in this Avatar, and in, even in the first one, uh, I took the whole Magic Leap team, uh, we, we went to see it uh, early on, is this level of world building and kind of like somewhere between a metaverse and a story world. Like, I think when you see Avatar 1 and then you see Avatar 2 in the right, like IMAX theater with their 3D glasses, you're tasting what people really want. The things they're getting right now in a VR headset, the lower res graphics, all that, that's not what they want. They want like that thing you're tasting in that IMAX theater with the, that fidelity, and the level of like acting and performance and the beauty of those worlds, that's what everybody wants. That's what everyone wants to get to. Like we were trying to push Micah close enough so you could taste a little bit of that, you know, just for five minutes in the real world. And I, you know, that was like, you had a little bit of that experience. So I feel like what's amazing about Avatar is it's like this preview of what's coming. Um, and I, I think that's, that's what's, you know, maybe 30 years from now when you're living in an avatar type world, like you can pop between Pandora universes and whatever in our kind of ultimate metaverse system, people will look back at avatar and go, that was one of the things that was really scratching at the door from the quality level, from the detail level, from the world building. Um, I think other projects like that, like the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit, Star Wars, to me feel like that depth of world building and that cinematic quality that if you put on a device, if it's going to be worth your time, put on a device and you could enter something like that and you encountered amazing real people and amazing like synthetic 
AI creatures who interacted with you in a very lifelike way. That would be freaking cool. I think that's ultimately what people want. So like the huge props to that team and the camera for having that vision. And I think it's a North Star for everyone working in the XR space. I think we don't want some 1990s thing, you know, which is what you got now. We all want to go to that place. And I, I think you would agree gotcha. on that. Yes, absolutely. And then uh, the best science fiction representation of this immersive AR riddled, you know, fantasy, not fantasy, it's, it's, it's happening in real time, but kind of like the ultimate idealized version. I, I, I guess I gave it, gave my uh, answer away a bit when carbon. I said altered carbon. Mm. Have, you, have you had a chance to see that? Yes, yes. Um, I think that's really interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's weird, but like mine, mine is not a science fiction one. And, um, I'll, I'll go back to something you and I talked about. Like, I think the Harry Potter world is, is a great metaphor. At least maybe my mind is stuck on it because I feel like it represents like what technology is going to allow people to do and more of a fantastical world you can live in. And I think what will happen is there'll be the people who deploy this kind of magic technology in everyday life. And then there'll be the everyday people who don't, you know, I guess they call those the muggles in the Harry Potter world. But like the idea that you can have like an owl deliver your mail or through gestures or voice and the use of special keywords, amazing things happen. Like so many of the things we're doing with AI, with XR, with like gesture and sensing all actually feel like they map to magic more than anything else. So if you think about it, like a totem feels like a magic wand. Gestures doing them right to make certain things happen kind of feels like things that you learn in School of Magic. Uh, special keywords, I think we've seen that in books and, and movies. Spell, like spell casting, yeah. And spell. And then uh, what's really interesting about AI today, it feels like conjuring and summoning. And And actually, the thing I've noticed about AI generative AI in particular, there's something about creating art where you like, you know, have the brush and you paint the canvas and you do all the work and you've earned it versus the summoning of art. And I think just like magic can be misused and there's a toll, this summoning of art, this conjuring has to be used really carefully. Cause I feel like we've been given a kind of summoning magic and it's just emerging in all these weird ways. And I think I think we're misusing it. You know, you have to use it really sparingly, really carefully. You know, but doesn't generative it feels like summoning? Like you say this magic keyword spell. In fact, generative AI artists are are now like keyword artists, and it's like they're using words to create. And if you go back to the origins of magic, like there's a word like abracadabra, which is like I speak and therefore I create, and it's like eerily mapping to everything we've ever learned about magic. So it's kind of weird. Like, are we learning something about how the world works and recreating it through tech and maybe remembering something humanity used to know a long time ago? Now we're reforming a, a bizarre mirror world version of it. But like, I think there's something about like pouring your own heart and soul with like a pencil and a moleskin or a guitar and creating the, like the human way. And then there's like summoning art and music and words that, you know, I'm not opposed to it, but I feel it takes a toll and you have to be very careful with it. 
Um, and I think no one's going to Hogwarts to learn the philosophy of what that means. So anyway, I think it's just an interesting thing for your listeners to think about, like, because I'm not, a, you know, some people like shut it down. It's a bad idea. I don't think you should make it go away. I just feel like we need to have a philosophy about conjuring and summoning versus creating art the way we're used to. Um, and, and I think maybe there will be like heightened humanistic artists who can summon and conjure things way beyond what we can imagine, like way past two-dimensional paintings or sculptures. Like they'll summon entire worlds into being that will just blow our minds. And those artists will need all these kind of tools. But uh, I think it's just like, it's like we've taken the book of spells and thrown it and just given everyone an opportunity to just start saying them. And like frogs are appearing everywhere and just people are like, what's going on? Like, you know, it, it, we're, we're, we've got this new tech power and we're just kind of throwing it around willy nilly and not really understanding what we're doing. So anyway, that's my diatribe. I think that's a fantastic point to end on. And I agree with everything you just said. Uh, I hope, uh, thank you for joining us. I hope you can come back when you kind of, uh, have like, I, I, we, we, we spoke earlier and I can tell that there's kind of like a phase two. There's something else coming. So maybe like when you have, uh, kind of like the next phase of the project developed, maybe we can like speak again because I can tell we've really just scratched the surface of some of the stuff we, uh, we're talking about. So Roni, I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Um, and man, you, you, I, I was already excited about this entire topic, you know, generative AI and the whole, you, you like this, yeah, the idea of spell casting. That's, I think that's something that will kind of gain traction. I think, I think you hit it. So thanks, Ronnie. Awesome. Uh, thanks for uh, joining us. I appreciate it. Uh, we'd love to come back. Right, really appreciate having me on. Yeah.